Welcome to the Sustain UW podcast, a place for sustainability conversation, expert interviews, and news hosted by student interns from the UW-Madison Office of Sustainability. We want to know, what's up with sustainability and where should we go from here? Before we dive into today's episode, we want to remind you that the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the views of the Office of Sustainability, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, or its Board of Regents. Now, let's get into today's show. So Rory, I know we're deep in fall right now, but what do you remember from this summer? Mm, I remember celebrating a birthday. I remember taking some trips with family and hanging out with friends. It was a really fun summer. What about you? I I had a really fun summer too. I spent a, a lot of time outside going on runs and bike rides, but I kind of just remember it being hot. Like every day, like every day was 94 degrees. Me too. I've never sweat so much in my life. Something that I also remember is the air quality. Yeah, there were so many days where I couldn't run or Or go outside. Yeah, because of the air quality. Yeah, the summer, it really seemed like weather dominated everything. And that is actually going to be the topic of today's Sustain UW podcast episode. So the summer, it felt like every other week there was some sort of weather advisory, whether it be air quality alerts from wildfire smoke or ozone or heat advisory. And we're going to take a trip down the summer weather memory lane and try to understand what made this summer so unusual. To do this, we are turning to Dr. Tracy Holloway, an air quality researcher at UW-Madison, and you are also the leader of the NASA Health and Air Quality Applied Sciences team. So Tracy, how was your summer? Uh, Well, thanks for asking. Um, Actually, it was a really fun summer for me because after the pandemic and not traveling, we'd really like pushed a lot of plans forward. And so we did a lot of fun stuff, but it was also... um, kind of upsetting to be here in Madison and see this unprecedented level of bad air pollution. Did anything in specific stand out to you? Well, certainly the wildfires in Canada were the headlining story. There were record sizes of area burned and smoke released, and it occurred earlier in the season than usual. So the idea that Canada is having summertime fires, that's not new. But the size, the timing, and the impact, that was very new. And we had uh, some air pollution exceedances, as we call them, like days that are above the standards set by the EPA here in Madison at levels that haven't been seen in well over 20 years. Wow. I want to point out uh, some data I pulled up today from Air Now about those um, unprecedented days. So in the beginning of the summer in June, like throughout June to, to July, I have air quality notifications on my <laughs> phone and I felt like every other day I was getting something. And I went to look on air now to see how many there actually were. And there were um, three unhealthy days this summer, one very unhealthy and 18 unhealthy for sensitive groups. And if you look back to 2022, there were no days for unhealthy for sensitive groups. So that seemed like a, a pretty big shift between this year versus last year. And as you said, this was from wildfires in uh, Canada that we were getting the the blowback from. But wildfires are often a natural part of an ecological cycle. So what was kind of different about this one? You know, the 
Earth system has like a lot of cycles built into it. We mm-hmm. have the El Nino cycle that people have heard of. And, you know, some winters are colder and some winters are warmer. But on top of these natural cycles that have been going on for uh, hundreds of thousands of years, there's also a clear warming trend. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's something that scientists have been talking about. Probably everybody listening to this has, <laughs> this is not news. But I think this idea that, you know, We do have the natural patterns and we have this background warming, 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 warming. And when you have warmer temperatures, then the land dries out. And when the land is drier, it's more susceptible to fires. So, you know, I think that I've been a professor here at Wisconsin for 20 years. And I'd say for most of that time, when I've talked about climate change in classes or with the public, I would use the future tense. But I'd say that this year was really, I'd say, the first year where I've talked about, like, this is the present tense. Like, Mm -hmm. these bigger wildfires, like, this is what we've been talking about for decades. um, And now we're seeing it. And it doesn't mean that now every year it's going to be this bad or every month we're going to have big smoke events. But it's just that this thing that's really never happened before in Madison, uh, this probably won't be the last year that we have it. I mean, I would expect in coming years there will be other summers that have lots of um, air quality yeah. alerts on your phone popping up uh, in a similar way. Yeah, I was I was going to say, it seems like, you know, you, you think about wildfires when you think of people that live in California, that's like mm-hmm. something they deal with every every year, uh, essentially. Mm-hmm. But but here, we don't necessarily have wildfires or we're not directly impacted. But in this case, we were. So mm-hmm. are, should we expect kind of more in the summers going forward? Or is that really still uncertain? Well, I would say it's one of these things that it's not... What to expect? You know, I mean, I think it's it's a good question. You know, I would say it's one of these things that it's worth being prepared for. Like what's Mm going to happen? Like when you see that alert on your phone, how are you going to think about that? How are you going to respond? And, I, you know, it's kind of the same way going into the winter season. You know, we make sure that we have some, you know, sand to put on our Mm -hmm. front patio and we make sure that our boots fit our kids. (laughs) And how many days are we going to have to put the sand out? I'm not sure. How many days are we going to have to really bundle up in the super cold weather? I'm not sure. But part of it is recognizing that this is a risk that can happen in the summer and thinking about, like, what are the things you can do in the spring to just make sure you're ready to roll? And I think some of those are having those KN95 or N95 Mm. masks that you may have still from COVID (laughs) and maybe wearing this week, depending on where you are, and um, having air-conditioned places that you can go to because when you're in air conditioning, um, that filters out a lot of the outdoor air pollution. And then there's air filtration, of course, that you can have in a building and the UW buildings have pretty good air filtration systems, but there actually are some air filters that you can make called a Corsi Rosenthal box, which basically means just take some paper furnace filters, tape them together in a box, and then put one of those like old school square fans Oh, the box fans? Yeah, the box fans. And, you know, the total cost of taping this together with duct tape is, I don't know, 30-something dollars. And But what it does is it sucks the air from the room through the fan, pushes it out through these paper furnace filters, and now you have actually a very effective, low-cost DIY air filter. So you don't have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to build mm-hmm. sort of indoor uh, resources to feel like if the air outside isn't what you want to be breathing, you have a place to go to. Hey, wow. I, I had not heard of that. I had in, in not. A whole, yeah, in a whole summer of I talking about air quality. I, I, I would have loved to make that. <laughs> I know 
one of my friends doesn't have air conditioning in her apartment. So she was like, what do I do during the summer? And I was like, I don't know. I, I don't know. But that's a great option. And it seems very accessible for people. Wow. I love that. But outside of wildfire smoke, Madison itself had some of the highest particulate matter days in the state. Where is that pollution coming from? Well, air pollution comes from a few different sources. I mean, we have cars and trucks, industry, the, you know, even when you're running your air conditioner, then that's using electricity from a power plant. And so the Mm -hmm. power plants are emitting more on the hottest days Mm. as well. So every day we have chemicals in the air and they come from a mix of different sources. And actually it's a huge question about how much on these wildfire days is from the wildfire and how much is from local sources. Mm -hmm. And that answer is going to differ depending on where you are. If you're way up in northern Wisconsin in the middle of a forest, (laughs) um, then it's probably mostly the fire. If you're in a big city like Chicago, then it's going to be a mix of the pollution that would have been there anyway, with or without a fire, plus the imported gases and particles that came from the burning in Canada or other places. So I think that, you know, this question about where where is the knob landing? Is it 10%, 90%? Is it 50-50? I think that's going to differ day to day and place to place. But I think this is actually a, a very hot policy question because we can't control the smoke coming in from Canada, mm-hmm. even though people are still breathing it. Um, we can control most other sources. So how do you design good air pollution policies when you have a mix of things that you can control and can't control? And this is something that every state in America and the federal <laughs> EPA is yeah. thinking about because the strategies that have been working for the past 50 years since the 1970 Clean Air Act are really bumping up against this new reality of wildfire smoke being a huge contributor. Mm -hmm. Then what you said about kind of figuring out which is which, uh, the city of Madison is going to install more PM particulate matter sensors because I believe we have two right now, one down University Ave and then one on the east side. And those have recorded some higher particulate matter days outside of wildfires. So what will kind of more sensors tell us and help us achieve? Yeah. So I'm working with the mayor's office on that network, um, which is really exciting. This is something, you know, for for a long time, we've measured ground-based monitors. And it's typically been done with really state-of-the-art measurements that are appropriate for supporting expensive national policies. And that's those two monitors that you mentioned. They fall into that category. But really, maybe over the past 10 years or so, the ability to make smaller, cheaper instruments that can also measure pretty small quantities of stuff in the air that we usually can't even see with our eyes, that's been improving and improving and improving. And so there have been some of these low-cost monitors already installed. Like there's a network called Purple Air. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the website purpleair.com and zoom in on Madison, you'll see some of the monitors that have been mainly installed by private homeowners. Um, There's other networks called uh, IQ Air, other things. But because the technology has been getting better and better, and because there's a growing awareness that different communities in a city are breathing different air. If you're near the airport, you're breathing different air than the people who are near a barbecue restaurant or the people who are near a highway. There are just a lot of factors that affect what's in the air we breathe that are sometimes very localized. So the EPA put out a 
opportunity for states and cities to apply for funds to set up these low-cost monitors. And that is who is funding the city of Madison's network. So the technology that um, we're putting out was advised by Professor Tim Bertram in the chemistry department here. Mm-hmm. He worked with the mayor's office to sort of figure out what are the, what instruments really are the best with the best balance of accuracy and without being too expensive. And I've been working with the mayor's office to kind of put this in the context of other data sources that we have. Like you mentioned, I lead the team for NASA where satellite data can see the whole city. And we've done some computer modeling that kind of estimates what people are breathing across the city. And these are the three main sources of information that help us understand what's in the air. Ground-based measurements, satellites from space, and computer models. But this idea that some of the pollution is so localized, it wouldn't necessarily be picked up by those two monitors that exist. So by putting in this network, we can see if there are hotspots or neighborhoods that may be exposed to higher unhealthy levels that we weren't seeing before. Mm -hmm. And I think it also helps if the air is clean. And the truth is, like, In Madison, on most days, we have great air. So, you know, this isn't a bad news story. But if people are breathing good air, it's good to tell them that. And if it's a problem, (laughs) tell them that. Yeah. And that that brings in also, if we're only testing in two places and we don't know certain communities, we don't see this environmental justice question, which uh, in in Wisconsin, uh, BIPOC communities and low-income communities are often disproportionately impacted by respiratory and cardiovascular illnesses, which... Uh, air quality is a cause of both of those issues. So how will these sensors help us with that? You're 100% right. The The health impacts of air pollution are respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, adverse birth outcomes, premature mortality. Um, there's a lot of negative health impacts where air pollution is one of the prime contributors. So if we're really trying to understand uh, what is causing um, disparate health impacts and environmental justice concerns, then we have to know what's in the air and how it differs place to place. And the, actually, uh, Milwaukee is putting in a network of also oh. EPA-funded um, monitors. In their case, they're putting it on public schools. So different cities are approaching this problem differently. But across the U.S., a lot of cities are expanding their low-cost monitoring. Madison is sort of part of the group that mm-hmm. is advancing in this area. So I think just even a year or two from now, we'll have a much better understanding of how air pollution is distributed across cities, uh, where the disparities are worse, where mm-hmm. the solutions can really make a difference. And, you know, if you don't know that a problem exists, you can't solve it. So I think yeah. that's really the step, the way that I think about it. Then, then, as you said, if we don't know a problem exists, you can't solve it. So what are steps and solutions to fix that air quality? Because it's there, there are a lot of sources, and it's it's not just a singular thing that we can tackle. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, and some solutions are easier than others. You know, I'll say one trend that's happening in across the around the world and here in Madison is this transition to electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are a win for climate because you're not burning gas in your tank. You're burning mm-hmm. more, getting electricity from different sources that can be zero carbon. But if you're not burning gas in your tank, you're also not emitting a lot of the ingredients to form these health-relevant pollutants. So if you have more electric vehicles on the highway, then you'll have less air pollution coming from the highway. You can think about it for passenger cars. You could think about it for trucks. You could think about it for school buses. And we could move to a reality where 
there was there was nothing coming off of the highway, even if you had vehicles oh, wow. going back and forth. You know, power plants is another example. Here in Madison, there had been coal-fired power plants when I first moved here. Yeah. Um, now those are natural gas power plants. And, you know, I've been working with Madison Gas and Electric that's on a plan to have a net zero carbon energy source by 2050 and getting closer to there before 2050, which includes expansion of renewables and, you know, other sources of, of non-emitting electricity. So that we're in the middle of a huge energy transition. It's, it's really exciting. <laughs> and a lot of it is driven by climate change, of course, and carbon dioxide associated with climate change. But this goes hand in hand with the kind of health relevant pollutants that make your air quality alert on your phone. Because anytime you're burning fuel or burning a fire, for that matter, it's emitting a whole mix of gases, some of which warm the planet, some of which are unhealthy to breathe. Mm -hmm. When I found out that Charter used to be coal-fired, and like that's where the train tracks are there, which I didn't know oh. until someone told me that, yeah, they used to just have coal come in and drop it off. And that just astounds me that that was coming right through Madison. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that changed. But now I want to transition to another part of the summer, which was this drought we were in. Yes. So I had the opportunity to do a lot of gardening this summer with F.H. King, which is a student farm on campus. And part of that was we took field trips to different farms and we were just talking to some farmers and they were talking about the drought they're experiencing right now. And, you know, that kind of coincides with the excessive heat that we've experienced this summer. So I was wondering what role does heat play in air quality and weather patterns? So um, when we're thinking about the weather, that, you know, there this the it's a super exciting topic, by the way. And I mean, we've been here at Wisconsin. Uh, we have one of the oldest meteorology programs, which is part of our the atmospheric and oceanic sciences major. And uh, understanding what makes a particular day rainy or cloudy or hot or cool is really thinking about the earth as this big sphere covered with gas um, that is, churning and moving in different ways, transporting heat that comes in at the equator and moving it up to the poles. And that just like when you're uh, boiling um, a pot of water to make spaghetti, you know, you're heated at the bottom. But once it starts boiling, then it starts churning and mixing. And so mm -hmm. the heat is being distributed throughout the water, not just the bottom. And that's exactly what happens with the atmosphere. You're heating it near the equator and it's churning to mix it all the way up to the poles. And so as we are seeing carbon dioxide rise in the atmosphere, the churning and mixing is happening on top of a warming that is just getting warmer and warmer because the Earth is not cooling as much uh, radiation to space. It's keeping it close by. Like I, I know it's called the greenhouse effect, but then I'm like, I don't even know how a greenhouse works. Like what does a greenhouse effect, you know? I like to think of it as like the blanket effect because if you're laying in your bed and you're cold and then you put on a blanket, you stay warmer because the blanket keeps the heat from your body close to your body. And that's really what the gases that warm the climate are doing, is that without as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the Earth is just cooling off to space and is at a nice, cool temperature. But then the as we're putting more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's more like a blanket, that it's holding that radiation close to the Earth so that the temperature gets warmer. So you know, as we see these changes in global temperatures, and people are often talking about global temperature rise of one degree or two degrees, 
But what it's really playing out on the ground is changes in our weather patterns. And research has been going on for decades to show that we expect temperatures to get warmer, which we're seeing. We're seeing our winters getting warmer more quickly than our summers here in the upper Midwest. We see changes in precipitation, which is that having more periods of low precipitation and when it is precipitation, stronger. So more floods, more droughts. We're also then having implications on the land because when you have uh, warm temperatures, I mean, of course, water evaporates more quickly into warm air. And if you have, you know, warm air and evaporation and less frequent regular precipitation, then the land is going to get drier and drier. So there's this, you know, what we're seeing on the ground is what has been predicted for a long time. Um, And I think one of the questions that I, you know, find interesting is, I mean, of course, okay, how can we take action? Because Mm -hmm. there's a lot of solutions that are on the table, ready to go. And I am an optimist. (laughs) And when I think about like what a climate solution might look like, I like to think about what we did with air quality back in the 1970s. In the 1960s and the 1950s, uh, air in the United States was getting worse, 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 worse. And then Mm -hmm. in 1970, the Clean Air Act was passed And there were all these solutions that suddenly were available but hadn't been widely implemented because nobody needed to. But now there were rules on the books. They were required. And really, since 1970, air in the United States has been getting cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. You know, asterisk (laughs) until all these wildfires that we were talking about earlier. But in terms of the pollution that was really driving air quality for most of the past 50 years, it's been getting better in the United States. And Another good success story is the ozone hole. The ozone hole was discovered in 1985 by a team of British scientists and in, over in Antarctica. And two years later, in 1987, there was a binding international agreement. And since then, the chemicals that destroy the ozone have been going down, and slowly the ozone hole has been repairing itself. And so this idea that, like, we see a problem, we make a solution— it gets better. Um, that's, that's a recipe that we followed. And it's a recipe that could be deployed for climate as well. So I think one thing I find hopeful is to, to think, how can we solve the climate problem? And I think, you know, the more we talk about it, the more we don't fight about it, but just try to like, see, this is a problem. We got to solve it. How can we solve it? That's, uh, I mean, and of course, fighting is part of that. But I would just Mm -hmm. say that I think climate has become so polarized that a lot of people don't talk about it because they don't want to, (laughs) like, disrupt the Thanksgiving table or whatever, you know. (laughs) But but I think that, you know, if we talk about, like, yeah, I mean, farmers are having problems when they're not having any rain on their fields. So part of it is thinking about the big picture solution, and that's uh, often referred to by climate scientists and policy folks as um, as mitigation. How can we how can we mitigate the problem, yeah. solve it? But there's also this idea of adaptation that no matter what we do, we are going to be seeing many of the changes that we're already seeing. And you know, what are more drought resistant crops? What are ways that we can be installing efficient irrigation systems? And, you know, one thing that's cool about the United States is that we span, like, hot, 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 dry climates all the way up to Alaska, <laughs> all the way you know, to rainforests in Hawaii. I mean, we have experience 
surviving and having communities and having agriculture on a wide, wide range of climate conditions. And so I think it may be a change for Wisconsin farmers, but there are solutions out there if we can, you know, think about what's happening and start trying to make decisions to manage the risk. I, I love that, the positive note, yes, um, but I, I will be a little bit of a, not a Debbie Downer, <laughs> but how kind of this heat that we're experiencing, we can adapt to it, but it's also kind of exacerbated some other issues. Like I think about the long stretches of PM days we had, and it was like, if we had a rain, that would help limit the the air quality we were breathing. And that would kind of bring all of that particulate matter down. But then more heat, it also more air, air conditioning, and that's more energy being used. And you've done research on this kind of cycle of if it's hot, we're using more air conditioning, which could in turn cause more pollution. So could you explain that cycle a little bit? Yeah. So the two main pollutants that we're talking about here when it comes to um, the air quality alerts on our phones, um, one is called particulate matter, and the other one is called ozone. And like, mm. this is a little confusing because we were just talking about the ozone layer. Um, there, Sometimes when we're talking about ozone, we say like good up high where it's a natural layer of ozone, bad nearby where we're breathing it in. And, you know, when we think about the ozone layer and why it is good, it's because it protects us from the sun. But just like you don't want to drink your sunblock, we don't want to <laughs> breathe in that ozone. And so um, ozone at the surface is not so good. So ozone and particulate matter are both big pollutants that are regulated by the Clean Air Act. They are both pollutants that have been a problem this summer here in Madison because of the wildfires. And ozone in particular only happens on hot, sunny days. And here in Madison, I think when I counted, we'd had 19 high ozone days. And sometimes we have ozone and PM together, and sometimes just one, and sometimes just the other. But ozone is the pollutant that is the most connected to this hot weather. And you're absolutely right that as we have hotter summers and longer summers, we expect to have more ozone. And, you know, the the disappointing part of this, other than the direct health effects of all this high ozone, which, of course, is a problem to be breathing. I don't want to breathe it. I don't want my kids to breathe it. But uh, it's it and it damages crop yields. It damages ecosystems. It has a lot of negative impacts. But actually, until really last year or two, it would have been a good news story because we have been cutting emissions of the ingredients to ozone and we have seen lower and lower levels of ozone over Wisconsin and much of the United States. And so these high temperatures are basically setting us back to say, oh, gosh, you know, we thought that we were making really good progress, but as we're getting more high ozone, high temperature days, it can lead to more high ozone. And certainly the um, wildfires are Im- importing some of the ingredients as well. So mm-hmm. we're kind of getting a double whammy of the hot days, especially earlier in the season, and the imported uh, wildfires. That's then on top of some of these other <laughs> feedback cycles. So, you know, yeah, we've done some work that was looking at the quantifying how much more power plants are emitting on hot days. There's also a relation with trees and plants because one of the ingredients to bad ozone are um, chemicals called volatile organic compounds or VOCs. And you probably encounter VOCs most directly like if you're painting your apartment and you may be even at the paint store and you're like, <laughs> one of them is more expensive called low VOC paint. And then there's like regular paint. And, the re- and basically if it's low VOC or no VOC paint, then it doesn't smell as much and you don't get those headaches and it's just 
you don't have that funny feeling of breathing in all the VOCs. But VOCs uh, are also an ingredient to ozone, and VOCs also come from trees and plants, especially on hot summer days, because the the leaves give off different uh, VOCs. So the hot summer days actually do drive the ingredients for more ozone, both from natural and human sources, Mm -hmm. and they cook up the chemistry that makes that bad ozone. So the link between climate and air quality is, is a really interesting one. Um, I'm really glad we're discussing it here. Uh, you know, one of the things that's a little bit challenging for me is that I would say that, you know, most people who I talk to actually mix up climate and air quality, like think they're the same issue. And so the first thing I usually try to tell people is like first to recognize that climate and air quality are two different issues. One is dealing with gases that affect the temperature of the earth. The other is dealing with gases and particles that make us sick and impact agriculture. So on the one hand, two different issues. And the the air quality one has been regulated since 1970, and that shows up on your phone with an alert, you know? (laughs) But even though they're two different issues, they are connected in so many ways because climate affects air quality and climate solutions are good for air quality. And some of the air pollutants feed back on the climate. So They're two different issues, but they have lots of connections. Kind of going to transition a little bit. Uh, Something we've talked about in our office are the social implications of poor air quality. Like for a few of the Office of Sustainability staff that had children, they had to stay home on days that the air quality was bad because Madison Metropolitan School District canceled summer programs on uh, June 28th for bad air quality. I like felt uncomfortable biking into work and biking is how I get everywhere because it was a really bad air quality day. So this has obviously disrupted our lives um, in more ways than I think people thought it would. So apart from these disruptions to childcare and workplace operations, how do you envision poor air quality impacting the way we live our lives? Well, you know, I think this summer has been um, us confronting situations that we've never planned for. And what I'd like to see is, uh, you know, plan some planning in advance so that we're not making it up the morning that we see, mm. you know, that alert coming through. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there has been some research, not a lot, but to say, you know, is it better for you to bike to work or to stay home? Because it's some, you know, biking and, you know, sending kids to school. I mean, these are all good things to be doing. And what is the level where the benefit is outweighed by the harm? And what is the level where it's so outweighed by the harm that we should cancel school for everybody or make issue a statement that everyone should stay indoors? And this is a kind of a topic that the weather community has been dealing with for a long time. Like think about a winter storm and where yeah. they have uh, the governor issues a road closing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a pretty extreme. But, you know, even before the governor says everybody should stay home, then there is uh, or the mayor or whoever issues the road closing. <laughs> even before that, they may say, like, don't go out unless it's essential. Or then before that, they might say, well, be extra careful on the road and drive slow. Like there are measures that depend on issues in the weather forecast. And actually, air quality can be forecast just like the weather. We have the same data and tools. Earlier in this program, we were talking about the ground-based measurements, just like for weather, satellite data, 
just like for weather, and computer models, just like for weather. So we can forecast air quality. And actually, if you go to the airnow.gov webpage, you can look at the forecast from that system. So, you know, I think that this question, like we can forecast it, but then how do we use that forecast data? And what are the health, equity, economic implications that we need to consider when making these decisions. And I would say that it is new territory, certainly for Madison, but I think it's really new territory across the U.S. There just aren't many places in the U.S. that have been facing really high air pollution episodes. And when they do, like California is a great example, it's only for a couple of days and then they go back to normal, you know? And so, you know, I think that thinking more about what is the right strategy for us personally, like thinking about whether you want to, you know, uh, have the do-it-yourself air filtrator in your um, in your room or and also socially and economically in institutions. Like wh- how should we make that if then uh, trade off and respond to these this information? I think it's I think it's new territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that being said, did you experience any interference in your life uh, from the poor air quality this summer? Yes. So my kids, we have a three-year-old and a 14-year-old. And um, the 14-year-old was at camp during some of the worst uh, air quality. Mm. Um, but where they were was just, just outside of the plume. So I don't think they were affected. Our three-year-old's daycare was here at the university. And uh, it was not canceled, but they kept the kids inside. And so, you know, for me personally, the biggest impact was on the fact that like I was talking a lot more about air quality uh, (laughs) through the day with journalists and the public. But I was very uh, aware of how people's lives were being affected and thinking about do these N95 or KN95 masks really do anything? So I talked to one of my students and I'm like, could you figure out one? Uh, What is the research? Do they work? And she found a paper and actually studies have shown that those, you know, Good masks with a good seal can reduce your exposure to fine particulate by like a factor of 14. So, I mean, they really make a difference if you are concerned about going outside um, on a high PM day. And, you know, also trying to think about what are the best ways to be communicating these complicated ideas. And oftentimes you hear about it expressed as the number of cigarettes you're breathing, you know? (laughs) And, um, you know, there was, you know, we found the source of whoever did that calculation. But I think that that's the kind of thing that can be done more rigorously and trying to figure out, like, what is the science between how to decide, you know, where and when to take action on a bad air quality day, um, but also then how do we communicate those risks in a news you can use way for people who are getting ready in the morning, hurrying out the door and trying to just figure out like what is best for my family, what is best for me today. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine because the saying goes, you know, ignorance is bliss, but you know so much about air quality and everything surrounding that that I can't imagine how you must have felt just waking up and kind of being so aware of everything that was kind of going on. And that's just wild. Yeah. Yeah. It was really a strange feeling to look out the window. And, 
you know, when I, um, for a long time, my sister lived in LA and every time I'd go to visit her in LA, you know, I'd see this haze and I'd take all these, these photographs because I'm like, wow, this is what I study, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but here in Madison, we don't have that experience, thankfully. Uh, so yeah, it, it was upsetting, but it was also, um, kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, but when you spend your life studying something and then you look out your window and there it is, there it you is. know, it's like, I don't want it to be there, but like, wow, I should take some photos. You know? <laughs> no, exactly. Something that has stood out to me talking with you is that you so proudly state that you are an optimist. And I really appreciate that because people kind of working and studying in this field of like climate and all that sort of thing, it's it can be hard and it can feel like we're not doing enough and it can just kind of be anxiety inducing. And I was just wondering how you stay so optimistic and how you are a glass half full person. Is there a way that you try to look at things that help you feel that way? Yeah, um, that's a great uh, question, Rory. <laughs> um, so one thing I have always liked about studying air quality is that it is a now issue. And it's a now issue that we have been investing in and has been getting better. And so we can see that like there are solutions, we can implement the solution. And if you implement the solutions today, our air will be cleaner tomorrow. It's very satisfying. Mm -hmm. And every year, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources issues a report called the Air Trends Report. And every year, it is good news, you know, Yay! <laughs> Yay! Uh, because, you know, with our energy sources are getting cleaner, our factories are getting cleaner, our cars and trucks are getting cleaner. And that is a different narrative than around climate, mm-hmm. um, because the things we can do to make our air healthier to breathe don't necessarily reduce the carbon emissions that are coming out. And in some cases, actually, if you take a, a coal burning power plant and put technologies on it to make it emit less bad health pollution that actually can even make it emit a little bit more carbon dioxide because it's using more energy to run those controls. So, you know, I think that my focus on air quality for the most part puts me in a glass half full topic area, Mm -hmm. but I think it also at least gives me a platform to say, you know, there are solutions out there. And the Clean Air Act that was written for the pollution we breathe in, was adapted in 1990 to address acid rain. And before it was addressed, uh, adapted for acid rain, there was a lot of discussion. This is going to be so expensive. It will never work. You know, this isn't the right application of this policy. A lot of the things we hear right now with climate. Well, those um, strengthening of the Clean Air Act to address acid rain, it was put in place under a Republican president. And indeed, it has worked. Acid rain has gone down. The pollutants that contribute to acid rain have gone down. And actually, there's a whole network across the United States called the National Acid Deposition Program that is still monitoring those improvements in acid deposition. And here's a fun fact. (laughs) The National Acid Deposition Program is run out of the University of Wisconsin. Wow. Oh, my goodness. There's something new about this school every day. I feel like (laughs) I hear one new thing, an amazing thing that we're involved in every single day. So, wow. Yeah, and then neat. Yeah, Professor Jamie Schauer, he's the director of the State Lab of Hygiene. And uh, they also run the National Asset Deposition Program with funding from the EPA. Oh, my goodness. Wow, yeah. 
So something we also discussed in the office was maybe all these photos going viral of the orange skies in the city, uh, New York City and elsewhere. Maybe this will be the thing that wakes people up like the common person to not only air quality, but the connections to climate and taking action. And I was really hopeful about that. But as we kind of move farther and farther away from the summer, I'm not noticing, I guess, the the change that I was expecting and kind of like the general population. I was wondering from your end, have you seen an increase in kind of people wanting to learn more, people wanting to be more aware about air quality and stuff like that? Um, you know, it's a real good question. And it's hard because we're we interact with the, I'm not a social scientist, so I'm not looking at like survey data. Mm. Um, so we interact with the communities that we interact with. And, you know, I'm invited to speak at different churches and different community groups. Um, but, you know, maybe those churches and community groups would have invited me two years ago. It's mm. hard to say. One one lens for this issue is that I'm a participant in a program called um, the Science Moms, and um, our website, sciencemoms.com, has a lot of accessible, nonpartisan information on climate change. There are, I think now, about 12 of us who are science moms, who are all scientists, and we're all moms, obviously, <laughs> as the name suggests, who are concerned about climate and wanting to move the conversation forward. So that organization is doing a lot of outreach. Sometimes people say like, oh, I saw a science mom ad when I was watching YouTube or, oh. you know, and um, because they're doing a lot of promotional work to help change the conversation um, empower everybody, not just moms, with information that is accessible and fact-based on climate. And, you know, I think each of these efforts is is moving the needle. Mm. And different things will resonate with different people for different reasons. And my feeling is that for some people, like climate as the problem is the motivator. But for other people, it's this idea of like, how can I cut my electric bill? Oh, or for other people, yeah. it's like, oh, those are very cool electric cars. I want one of those, you know. <laughs> they look sleek. <laughs> they look really sleek. And, um, you know, and other people, it's like, I want to boost our state's economy by having more of our energy come from within the state and not sending as much money out of state or to other countries. And in my feeling, like all of those are moving us in the same direction. And so it's if if climate is the message that resonates with people, like, that is that takes us in the same direction. But I don't think we have to convince everybody that that's the reason to do it. If you want to do it for the economy, if you want to do it for healthier air for your kids, if you want to do it because uh, actually on an induction cook stove, you can boil your water in 60 seconds. Like those are all good reasons. Um, and I think that, you know, this clean energy transition is something that's happening and it's happening for by with a lot of different interest groups for a lot of different reasons. So, um, yeah, I guess that's also back to your glass half full. Like mm -hmm. those are the kind of things that I think about when I think about what's going to get us there. It's that, um, you know, this isn't a sacrifice issue. It's an opportunity issue. And I think an opportunity for a state, Wisconsin has no coal mines. Wisconsin has no um, oil drilling. Wisconsin has no natural gas in the state. Like all of these fossil fuels are coming from someplace else. But we have uh, sunlight, 
wind, uh, agriculture, bioenergy. We have a lot of expertise on energy conservation and innovation and startups. So to me, there's a lot of opportunity. And I don't think that's just opportunity for some other country or some other city. I think that those are opportunities that we can tap into here in our own state, here in our own city of Madison, and especially here at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I I love that outlook. It's kind of what you're saying is like it's more about meeting people where they're at and not making sure everyone understands the exact same thing, but making sure that we meet people where they're at and and move the needle forward in that way. Yeah. I, that's a wonderful way to look at it. I really yeah. appreciate that because I haven't really considered that, but that's so true. You don't need everyone to know exactly what climate change is or I don't know the intricacies, but yeah, if someone just wants to cut their electricity bill, then you can be like, oh, this this connects to this and you have a way open there. But yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. And having said, I do think that's a great Ending yeah, point. yeah, that's we're wonderful. Our time. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with, with us today, Dr. Holloway. We appreciate you guiding us through this chaotic summer and shedding some light on the air quality and pollution, and now a positive outlook that I often really struggle to have. And it was really lovely to learn more about your work. So thank you so much for joining us on the Sustain UW podcast. Yes, thank you both for having me. It was really a pleasure to talk with you both. And thank you for listening to the Sustain UW podcast. Thanks to the Director of Sustainability at UW-Madison, Dr. Missy Nergard, and to the Director of Sustainability Education and Research, Professor Andrea Hicks. Thanks also to the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies and to Facilities Planning and Management for supporting this podcast. The making of these episodes requires a lot of behind-the-scenes work from the entire intern podcast team, and we are so grateful for their efforts. Until next time, continue thinking about how to best sustain UW.